If you have a Bible, you can open to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We'll look at verses 4 through 12 this morning. And the text is also in the bulletin on the next page. Is it okay? Okay. <laughs> well, it was great having Charlie with us for a couple of Sundays, right? Uh, really nice to have a break from the heavy stuff in Ecclesiastes. Um, Getting back into it. We might take a little break again uh, here coming up soon because Easter is coming up. But then we'll get right back into Ecclesiastes. Probably feel like we'll be in that till the end of the world, at least to some of us. (laughs) Uh, Let's just have a quick recap on uh, the book so far. The preacher, Ecclesiastes, perhaps even the great King Solomon himself, uh, is exploring life under the sun. That's the phrase that he uses uh, so many times. Life in this world... Life in this earthly realm as if what we could see is pretty much all there is. So he's, uh, he's looking for answers to our biggest questions. He's looking for solutions to our biggest problems in life. And he's telling us that apart from a relationship with God, our search for answers, our search for solutions in this world will ultimately be futile. We need life with the God who comes from beyond the sun. We need him to give our brief lives lasting significance. We need him to fix problems like the problem of our sin with his grace. We need him to fix the problem of our death with his resurrection. We need him to solve the, the riddle of our existence with his presence. Ecclesiastes uh, really focuses on raising the hard questions and pointing out what's wrong and empty about life lived apart from God. Uh, not so much so focus on the the answers, the solution aspect of it. So we often have to supplement by going to other places in the Bible for our answers, for our hope, for the good news. So this morning, Ecclesiastes will be about uh, his business as usual. He'll highlight the problem of the brokenness of our relationships or uh, just the sheer lack of them altogether. Uh, He doesn't use the word friendship, uh, but when we search the rest of the scriptures and find out what's the answer to this problem, um, We find that word. So that's what we need. We need friendship. That's the solution to the problem that Ecclesiastes is pointing out here. And of course, we're not just talking about friendship in worldly terms, uh, the kind of friendship that just anybody can have with each other. We're interested in friendship with God, friendship with Jesus, uh, and the spiritual friendship that exists in the church among believers by God's grace. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you made us so that we could have a relationship with you. You gave us ears so that we could hear you speaking. And we pray that you would speak to us now. Reveal yourself to us in your son, in your scriptures. And work in us by your spirit so that we can respond with true faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 4, verses 4 through 12, this is just... Uh, slight variations in translation from the ESV here that's uh, printed. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vapor and herding wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and herding wind. Again, I saw vapor under the sun. One person who has no other either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? 
This also is vapor and an evil business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So at first, uh, I was thinking to break this up into two sermons, one on the first three verses there, four through six, uh, talking about something like contentment in work, because contentment is a huge um, theme throughout the scriptures. And then another sermon on uh, verses 7 through 12, talking about the sort of benefits of friendship and companionship, because that's a big theme throughout the scriptures. But it became clear, I think, that, uh, that these things are related. And this whole passage really is about the benefits of friendship for our work, for the things that we toil after. Not just your 9 to 5 job, but the, the things you spend your life's energy on. Right? Um, <clears throat> so friendship is the solution to a big problem with our toil, a big problem with our work in this world. Friendship's the solution to that. Ecclesiastes points out the big problem right away in the passage. He says, apart from God, apart from relationship with God, we engage in our work from a place of broken relationships. That's what he's saying when he says, verse 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So this is a problem that affects us all. In our work, we are driven by self-centered uh, competitive motives, is what he's highlighting here, right? So we want to be better than others who do the same things that we do in life. We want to be better than others who have the same jobs that we do. We want to outshine others. We want to get ahead. We want to get that promotion before anybody else. We want to get the approbation. We want to get the reputation for being the best at what we do. That's normal for all kinds of people doing whatever they do with their life's energy, with their work, with their toil. I feel that way all the time. Much of my desire to be a good pastor, just true confessions, right? It comes from comparing myself to other pastors I know. There's always somebody who's doing my job better than I am. There's always somebody that I can envy, someone I can chase out there in front of me, someone, someone I can hone my skills to try to surpass, right? Overtake them and surpass them in being the best pastor I know, right? Uh, it's like Charlie coming in here, preaching his fancy sermon with all his illustrations that he does so well. If I just up my illustration game, my work would improve, and I could feel better about my work when I compare myself to Charlie. Please don't come up afterwards and say, oh, you don't need to compare yourself to Charlie. You do fine. We like you as our pastor. That doesn't help me. That feeds the problem, right? It feeds the problem. And it's like that for all of us. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or an educator, or these days those happen to be the same thing uh, for a lot of us, whether you're an engineer, an accountant, a healthcare worker, whatever, it's the same, right? Envy is an effective motivator to work harder and better. And that means we use the brokenness of our relationships to motivate ourselves in our work, in our toil. And that's bad. That's bad. That, that doesn't lead anywhere good. Envy might be an effective motivator, but it's a sinful one, right? Envy is related to covetousness. I think a lot of people confuse them. They're not identical, but they're related. So much so that, you know, we're talking about our Westminster um, catechism. Envy is sort of lumped in there with uh, sins that are included in the the Tenth Commandment, right? 
which is, uh, is, you know, covetousness is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment. Envy is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment, which makes it a pretty big deal. We're talking about the Ten Commandments, right? In the Ten Commandments, the God of love and grace, the God of our salvation, tells us how to live in our relationships with him and also in our relationships with each other as a response to his love and grace and salvation. So the Ten Commandments are ultimately all relational. They all have to do with our relationships with God and with each other. And Jesus and the apostles sum them all up in one word, love. So when we envy our neighbor, we're breaking the Tenth Commandment, it's a failure of our love. When we envy our neighbor, it's a bad response to the God of love. When we envy, we live in a broken relationship with the ones that we're envying. Because we live in a self-centered way when we envy other people. So when you work just to outshine others, when you work just to get ahead for yourself, you're living out of step with the God of love. And the direction of a life like that ultimately is one of isolation, where you only live for yourself and work for yourself. And so Philip Ryken has a great commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. He says that what the preachers saw here is a warning for all of us against isolation, selfishness, greed, and a sinful addiction to work. Yet most Americans continue to believe that we can make it on our own. Rugged individualism, we call it. Living and working for ourselves is one of the fastest ways to turn the American dream into a nightmare. So it isn't hard for us to imagine sort of a quintessential workaholic, right? Becomes so consumed with his work that his life dwindles down to, to nothing more than his work. And he ends up pushing everybody in his life away. I've known people like that. You've probably known people like that. So Ecclesiastes says, again, I saw vapor under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? For whom am I making myself miserable, working for myself all the time? If the brokenness of your relationships, things like envy, or here, in, the, in these verses, uh, things like the love of money, caring more about wealth than about other people. Uh, if these are things that are motivating you to work harder, to become more skilled in your work, then you'll lose the very thing that makes for a human life, and that's relationships. You'll burn them all up for the sake of your work, and you won't even care enough to stop to ask, hey, where'd everybody go? For whom am I toiling? You should reflect on the fact that you're doing all this work for yourself. You should stop and ask, hey, where'd everybody go? For whom am I toiling? You should reflect on the fact that you're ruining your own life for the sake of yourself. But you won't, because self-centered people don't do that. You'll just keep on investing yourself in your own doom. God says that our work is to be done for others, and our work is to be done with others. That we're to expend ourselves and our lives and our energy for the sake of other people, that relationships with other people in God's image make our life and our work worthwhile and good. 
Work is something to be done together. Work is something to be done for the good of others. So you might have something to give to others. Work is something to be done motivated by love. That's what, that's what God says. So David Gibson is another commentator on Ecclesiastes. He says that the value of life, this is in the, the bulletin there on the next, uh, on that page, uh, printed there, that quote for you. <clears throat> the value of life is not what you earn, but who you relate to. It is not what you buy, but what you give. Life lived in community and mutual interdependence is better all around for everyone. So, so uh, Proverbs, talk about Solomon's wisdom. Proverbs 15 uh, says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs. Can you imagine just eating only herbs for dinner? Uh, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it, brokenness in relationships. Better to have a little, right? Better to be content with just a little if you've also got love and relationship and friendship. Work is meant to be a place for life together, for friendship rather than envy or the love of money and things like this. And if that could happen, then our work would be better. It'd be more enjoyable. As Ecclesiastes continues, says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. This is uh, a lot of times taken to talk about marriage. It's not just talking about marriage. It's talking about, you know, cold desert nights when travelers are out in the wilderness and you sleep back to back so you don't die of uh, hypothermia when it, you know, it's a cold desert night. So if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? You won't. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So there are very practical ways in which friendship helps our work. We're able able to help uh, each other accomplish more together when we work together. Right? We can help each other when we get into trouble. We can face dangers and difficulties better together. Solve problems together. There's strength in numbers and so on. Right? These are all practical things. Philip Ryken again said togetherness is better than loneliness. Connection is better than competition. Everybody would say that. Everybody knows that. Partnership and fellowship in our work, love and friendship, it makes the work better, and it helps us to navigate pitfalls of life better. That all sounds nice, but Ecclesiastes is is pretty honest, isn't he? We think, of course, camaraderie and teamwork are better than competition and isolation, but envy is still a problem for us still got brokenness in our relationships. We still approach our work with sinful, self-centered motives, living out of the brokenness of our relationships, using that brokenness as motivation. We should be the kind of people who are good friends. Uh, who do, as Paul says in Romans 12, we talk about this passage a lot, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But envy compels us to weep when others are rejoicing. To be upset when someone else gets the promotion. Their life's going well. But it's really hard to celebrate when they've been rewarded and we haven't. And envy compels us to rejoice when others are weeping. When we get ahead of the competition, envy causes us to secretly smile at their defeat, which they must be suffering. 
Our friendships are broken because our love is broken. And the Bible says it's all because our relationship with the God of love and the God of friendship is broken. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news about friendships restored, beginning with our friendship with God. It's hard to believe that God would befriend people like us. In fact, I've known people who should believe this, who should understand this, almost expect better than other people. I've known pastors who've argued God doesn't call us his friends. It's too hard to believe. Even though it's right there in the scripture, it's hard enough for them to believe. And the same pastors end up having a skewed vision of friendship with others. And they say, well, we pastors need to keep our professional distance and we shouldn't become friends with others in the congregation. Something's broken about that. It's so hard for us to believe in God's befriending us and what that means for our relationships with each other. But friendship is an important and beautiful aspect of all of our relationships in the church. Beginning with our relationship with God and extending to all others among his people. And it begins... Not with our being presumptuous about our friendship with God, but with his initiation, his revelation. He calls us his friends. Isaiah 41 points out that God calls Abraham his friend. Abraham was a dirtbag, but God called him his friend. The Gospels say that Jesus is called a friend of sinners, very bad people. The only good man in the world, friends with bad people like us. John 11, Jesus calls Lazarus his friend, and he gathers with those who are outside his friend's tomb, and he weeps with those who weep before raising his friend from the dead. John 15, our gospel reading, which Tim read, Jesus calls us his friends, his disciples. Really, it includes all of us. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. So he's talking to a group of guys who are about to fail him big time, all of them. That very night, would you call such people friends? Jesus reveals God's love, God's love to us in his own love for his friends. Jesus lived to serve us. Jesus labored and toiled to bless us. He spent his whole life energy on people like us. He literally laid down his life for our good when he went to the cross and when he died. This is God's love. This is God living for the sake of his friends who are sinners. And this is true human love that we see in Jesus, made perfect in God's image. And this is what Jesus invites us all into, his friends, to join him in living for the sake of our friendships as he has done. Jesus' love is the greatest because he went so far as to lay down his very life for his friends, for us. But it doesn't mean he was only willing to do the most spectacular, tremendous thing at the end of his life, dying on the cross for the salvation of the world. Of course, He was willing to do that for his friends, and he did that. But if he was willing to do that, it meant that he was also willing to serve, to get down on his knees, to do the dirty work of washing feet, to live his daily life, and do his daily work with others in mind for the sake of others and with others. So if you're you're in a friendship with Jesus... 
And if, if his great love is in you through his spirit, which is his gift to you, then you'll be willing not just to lay down your life at the end, throw yourself in front of a bus to save a brother or sister. Right? You'll be willing to wash the dishes and change the diapers and fix this and improve that and help them and do all kinds of good work for the sake of others to help them and bless them and serve them and have something to give in the name of Jesus. If God has called you a friend by his grace, which we have in his scriptures, he's done that, then you can call each other friends in the church and you can help each other with meals, help each other with the kids, uh, you can sit with the grieving widow. You can be happy for your friends rather than envying them. Uh, this last summer during the wildfires, uh, some of you had to evacuate your homes and others of you instantly opened your homes to them. That's, that's a way friends help each other face pitfalls in life together. Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Sometimes you might face the dangers of temptation and sin in your own life. And a friend in the church, a real friend, will confront you and speak the truth in love and help you to think about your relationship with Jesus and help you to respond to Jesus. And that might be painful, but it's good. That's how friends help each other face spiritual dangers in life. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So when God befriends us, it restores our ability to befriend each other and to face life together. If Jesus is a friend of sinners, and that means you, then you can be a friend of sinners too, even though that can be a dirty, stinky job, right? Um, have you ever heard 3 John quoted in a sermon before? I don't think so. Not, not here anyway. You're about to. You're in for a treat. I love this. Uh, 3 John 15 says, it's his, his parting blessing. Right? He says, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. All right, so John blesses the church to whom he writes with the peace of Christ. And he uses the language of friends to talk about everybody. It's not just your click. It's not just your affinity group. It's not just the people who look like you and dress like you and smell like you. It's not just the people right next to you in the pew. You're all friends in Christ. So this would be a great benediction for the, the passing of the peace, right? Which, by the way, we're going to reintroduce today. After the sermon, as we come to the table, we're going to reintroduce the passing of the peace, at least in a limited sense. Um, but in Christ, your brothers and your sisters and your friends, and you get to know each other by name because Jesus has personally befriended each and every one of his people. You have the privilege of being the friends of Jesus and also the privilege of befriending all the friends of Jesus, of coming to know and serve each other personally and intimately. His friends are your friends. Those line up perfectly. And because of his grace, we can live together and we can work together in grace. We can give up things like selfish ambition 
and envy and a love of money and every motive born out of the brokenness of our relationships and in the love of God esteem each other more highly than ourselves. We can work together with Jesus. We can work together with each other and participate in Jesus' own mission, his own work, his own toil in this world of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God's friends. Because Jesus is fixing the problem of our love with his friendship. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear that you are the friend of sinners. That might seem like something you've once said long ago to people in a remote place, people who are not us. Please teach us, teach our hearts that this means that you are our friend. And help us, help me, help me to respond to your friendship in my relationship with your other friends here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.